So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. These are the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. We've been working through and are working through the book of Philippians, and uh, uh, we're going to continue that. Uh, so as you're paging open to Philippians chapter 2, I want to tell you a little story. A mother was preparing a pancake breakfast for her two little boys, Kevin and, and Ryan. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Typical boys, right? Well, mom saw this as a perfect opportunity for a moral lesson. And so she said, now boys, hold on a minute here. Let me tell you, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. The two boys sat silent for a minute. Then the older one, five-year-old Kevin, turned to his younger brother Ryan and said, Okay, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> Humility. Humility, thinking of others more than you think about yourself. Humility. Passage we're looking at this morning deals in this area of humility. In our culture... Humility is not a character quality that people strive after. It's just not something that people want to be identified with. Why do I say that? Because humility will not get you into political office. Humility will not get you a promotion at work. Humility will not result in things going your way. We know that in the world that we live in, humility is a character quality that nobody really wants. Why? Because humility thinks of others in a positive and constructive way. And Philippians 2, 1 to 11 presents this attitude of humility and challenges the church in Philippi, challenges us to embrace humility. Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, 25 calls his disciples to gather around him and he says to them, I think this is so fitting even in our world. He says to them, you know that the rulers of Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul is writing this from Rome 
to the church at Philippi. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. He's chained to a guard 24-7. The funny part about it is, as I think of this, and as I think of already what Paul wrote in 1 Philippians, in, in chapter 1 of Philippians, I think, isn't it amazing how God does things? See, Paul has a captive audience 24 hours a day. You know, the guard can't leave Paul. They're chained to Paul. And because of that, Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel. And he tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that because of this, the gospel is being proclaimed and it is being embraced by soldiers, by guards, and then by others. Somehow, when I think of this picture, I, I, I just imagine these guards, you know, and, and just from what's written in Philippians chapter 1, I, I just don't see these guards kind of thinking it's a downer to be chained to Paul. I think it's kind of like, oh, I can't wait till tomorrow. It's my turn to spend time with Paul. You know? Because Paul is filled with joy. The circumstances of his life, they're not a downer. He looks at these circumstances and he's able to see God at work. His perspective on life is so different maybe than our perspective of life. I think of Paul and Silas because this theme of prison for the church at Philippi was a common theme. That's how the church started in Philippi. Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. The second converts, we could say, in Philippi were the jailer, was the jailer and his family. Paul and Silas are sitting in jail and, and it's late at night and they're singing songs of praises to God. Paul looks at life completely different than we would. And so I think that being chained to, to Paul probably was an opportunity that the guards looked forward to. So Paul begins to write these verses that we're looking at this morning from that imprisonment, from that situation to the church at Philippi. And he starts with the word, therefore. And, and it's an old saying, if there's a therefore, see why it's therefore, you know, that type of thing. Like, the therefore always connects with something earlier. So it's important to realize that and to say, okay, he's starting here in verse one with the word therefore. So he's connecting it back. What's he connecting it to? Well, I would say that he's probably connecting it to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And 1, verse 27. The reason why I say that is because this is the theme that follows through. In 127, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The first four verses of Philippians chapter 2 really is one long Greek sentence. Greek is the original language that the New Testament, the majority of the New Testament was written in. And, and so these first four verses are just one big sentence. I'm going to say, I just see a number of students here, don't try to do this in your English class. It's probably not going to work, you know. But it did work in Greek. And, and there's one verb in this, one main verb in this, and that's make my joy complete. And it sits in the middle of the sentence, bringing what's at the start and connecting it with what's at the back in this sentence. And, and then as you're looking at this one big long sentence, it, it can seem kind of strange and weird because of the word if. And there's four ifs in there. And for us, the if kind of brings doubt to it. But the way the sentence is structured and stuff, it's not doubt. It's a way of establishing an argument, we could say. That's what it is. We could put the word since in there, but we'd have to kind of flip around the words a little bit, you know, to make it work in our English grammar. And so, if fits in the English grammar... But it's there to create kind of this or establish an argument. So it's not communicating uncertainty. It's creating a logical relationship and conclusion. And the make my joy complete is what connects it. It's the hinge. Pastor, author, Chuck Swindle, he had a beautiful illustration in this, and I thought, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give him the credit in this because it's, it's just well done. He said it's like this. Here's an example. If you're my son, and if I'm your father, and if you're only seven, and if I'm the head of the home, then clean your room. You know? And, and so that's the idea here in, in these verses. So as believers in Christ, of course we find encouragement in Christ and in one another we're supposed to. If we're believers in Christ, of course there's compassion, there's love, there's comfort, there's unity because these things are real in Christ Jesus. And these are the things that have drawn us into fellowship in Christ and then into fellowship of one another. And so because of these things, because they're real in Jesus, Paul says that we ought to have the same like-mindedness, maintain selfless love, we're to be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. That's where we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to live life. So what does that mean? It means that our purpose is to be 
fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Who make fully devoted followers of people who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus. That's what we're to do. That's why we're on planet Earth. We've embraced Christ because of the peace, of the love, and the encouragement. All of these things that we find in Christ. So simply said, disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's how we're supposed to live. How do we do this? Well, the gospel is not something that we spread through force. And when we look over church history, we'll see that the church has tried that. But it doesn't really work. The gospel is not something that is spread through force. Though it has been tried in past in the history. The gospel is not something that can be legislated. Again, that has been tried. But it really doesn't work. The gospel is not something that is proclaimed through protests. I mean, we do that, but it's not really working. It's not something that's really embraced through debate, though it can be. The gospel is spread through servant leadership, through an attitude of humility. Every time we see the church growing, it's growing when the church is imitating Jesus. And when you look at Jesus' life, you do not see Jesus spreading the gospel through force. You do not see him legislating the gospel. You don't see him protesting. You don't see him debating. He shuts those things down. Again, I introduced that scripture passage at the beginning, Matthew chapter 20, 25, and 28. The disciples were talking about greatness, you know, and, and they knew that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom. They were hoping that kingdom was going to happen really soon, that it was going to happen like then and there. And a way the kingdom is now and future. It is now, it was then, but it is also future. But the disciples, they were talking about greatness. You know, who's the greatest? Who's going to sit on Jesus' right and left? Who's going to be there, man? That's what they were talking about. And then Jesus brings them together. And again, we've re read this already, but I want to read it again. It says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. What an upside-down world that goes so against the culture that we live in. 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just, and catch it now, here it is, just as the Son of Man. And so Jesus is saying, just as the Son of Man, just as me, you know, just as the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, he's, he's directing it to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a little bit later, on the night where Jesus is gathering there with his disciples, the Passover is taking place, he demonstrates, he's that example to the disciples. They all gather in what's the upper room, you know, and, 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 in those days, you'd wear sandals and no socks, and you'd walk outside, and your feet were dirty, of course. And, and when you ate a meal, you kind of laid down, and you'd have somebody else's feet in your face and this type of stuff. And it was just custom. It was just part of being a good host that when somebody came to your place, you'd have somebody there, not you, of course. That was, that was, that was just, you know. But you'd have a servant. You'd have a servant. You'd have somebody there that would wash the guests' feet. The disciples had prepared the upper room. They'd prepared this place for, for Jesus and for them to gather. But somebody slipped up. There was no servant at the door to wash feet. And what does Jesus do? Jesus wraps a towel around himself. Jesus, king of kings, creator of heaven and earth, ruler of all. And even the disciples were looking forward to this kingdom where he would be the ruler. Takes a towel, wraps it around himself and starts washing the disciples' feet. He gives an example of humility. So Paul, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another. So after that long sentence, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. The same mindset as Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, the end goal is not to be forgiven. It's not to be accepted by Jesus. It's not to be in heaven. And you're thinking, huh, pastor, what's going on? I'll repeat that again, just so you catch it. The end goal is not to be forgiven. The end goal is not to be just accepted by Jesus. The end goal is not to be in heaven. These are all important. The end goal is to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what the end goal is for a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. God wants to actually transform you. He actually wants to transform me. To put the mind of Christ inside of me. In a way he's done that. When you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. 
And she said, most of us like to stuff the Holy Spirit kind of out of the way, you know, except for a miracle or two. That's, we love that. But, you know, don't, don't, you know, the rest. We just, you know. But God wants the Holy Spirit to live in you in such a way that you literally start thinking like Jesus. That's what he wants. That you literally start thinking like Jesus. And so, how did Jesus think? And there it is for us. Philippians 2, 6 to 11. How did Jesus think? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, look at these verses. Look at the words. Jesus, who in very nature is God. Jesus is God. He always was. All things were created through him. That's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus always will be God. Jesus is God. Jesus did not use this equality with God for his advantage. That's what it says to us. Jesus did not act entitled, privileged, or use the power that was rightfully his for his own advantage. Jesus chose to take on human form. Remember, he created us. He chose to take on human form. And in taking on human form, he did not lose his divinity. Jesus, fully God, fully man. He added humanity to who he was. He did not give up who he was. That'd be impossible. Metaphorically, there's nothing, the word nothing, or we see in the text, metaphorically speaking, he took upon himself that which was of far less value. He put on humanity. He did not take on the persona of a king when he put on humanity. He didn't take on the persona of a rich man when he put on humanity. But a common everyday person. He didn't come as a grown-up. He took on human form in that vulnerable stage as a baby. That which was of far less value than who he was, who he is, he took on. He put on humanity. He chose to serve humanity 
by being made in human likeness and submitting to the aspects of humanity. What does that mean? When we look at these verses, what does that mean? It means he took on pain. He took on suffering. He took on persecution. He took on hunger. He took on tiredness. God doesn't get tired, but he took on tiredness. He took on thirst. He took on temptation, but was without sin. Basically, he took on the pain of human life, the difficulties of living in a fallen world, is what he did. To serve humanity. That's why he did that. And then he died on the cross. He was obedient, it says, to death, even to death on the cross. He was obedient to the will of the Father to redeem us. God could have destroyed all of humanity. He came to that point once before with the flood. But no, he was obedient to the will of the Father. And then he was obedient to the will of the Father in daily life. Because he lived that life, that perfect life. The life that we're called to live. He lived it. A daily life living without sin. And I think of the garden. Remember there in the garden, when he was wrestling with all of this, he knew what was going to happen. Drops of sweat mixed with blood. He prayed and he said, Father, not my will but yours. There we see that whole obedience coming. He died and on the third day, he rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. So we go back to our scripture passage and we look and say, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Was God's exaltation of Jesus and the giving him a name, a promotion? The answer is no, because that's how some people read it. But that's not it. No, it wasn't a promotion, it was vindication. It was declaring that Jesus is God. He was God, he is God, nothing there changed. And today he's at the right hand of the Father and his name is Lord. And as we read earlier in Isaiah 45, verse 23, every knee in heaven on earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, it will happen. Because Jesus is God. He died for you. And, and God calls us to sacrifice. 
And our sacrifice will never be equal to the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. It'll never be equal to that. But he calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to go low so that others will be saved. So humility is not thinking less about yourself, but thinking about the other person. And that again is so contrary to our culture. It's in conflict to our culture. Because we're in a me first culture. And it's all about me. But that's not what we're called to do. So again, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Wow. How do we do that? What does that mean? One pastor put it this way. I like this, and so that's why I put it up here. I like this because to me, it, in my brain, it took a while. It keeps wrapping around this and thinking about it. It seems strange, but it's there. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Huh? That's kind of neat. It's not thinking of yourself less. Or less of yourself. There we are. That's what I say. This is really, you know, it's, but it's right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Okay? It's not, woe is me, I'm a worm, I'm good for nothing. Whoa, everybody's better than me. You know, I'm going to get everybody, you know, can go ahead of me in the line, everything like this. That's not what it is. It's simply thinking of yourself less. It's not about you. That's simple. It's not about you. If we've encountered Jesus, if we've encountered his love, his spirit, his tenderness, his compassion, then we have no reason to do anything out of selfish ambition. We have no reason to be self-centered. Because we have nothing to gain. Because through Christ, you have everything already. Everything. You are a child of the King. You have eternity in the presence of God. Your inheritance is with Christ. You have everything. We don't have to live selfishly, selfishly, selfish. Anyways, you got it. We don't have to live like that here. We don't have to do that. And then, you know, like think about it for a moment. You've got everything. And yet sometimes we seem to be so petty. The message is not try harder. The message is ask Jesus to make you more like him. That's it. Become more like Jesus. And you can't do it on your own. You're going to need Jesus because we've got to get rid of our egos. 
We've got to be willing to be used to save others. So now I want to throw it out in a little bit of a practical side. And I thought, how does this work? How, how does this work? How can I really do this in a culture that is in such great opposition to Jesus? And, and we live in a culture that is in opposition to Jesus. And it's moving fast. I'm looking out at some of you. It's not the 80s anymore where everybody walks to church with a big Bible on Sunday. It's not the 80s anymore. The culture we live in is anti-Christian. It's against Jesus. And I thought about this. So, so what is Jesus asking in these verses? What's he saying? How do we do this in this culture? It's not through protests. It's not through screaming or demanding your rights. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He didn't have to tie. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. Like think of this whole, what we looked at these verses. There, there is a way to do the protesting thing. There is a way to do the petition thing. There is a way to demand our rights. Still, today, or whatever, in our country. There is a proper system. And as Christians, we should use that proper system. But really, we're called to live like Jesus. We declare what is wrong. That's what we do. Jesus did that. I was talking with somebody the other day and we were talking about speeding and, and you know, I, I mean, I have to be honest. I, I speed at times, right? I just do that. I have a heavy foot, I this, that, whatever I want to say, call it and stuff like that. I speed. I, I know I speed. And if I get caught, I'll pay the piper because I've done wrong. I've broken the laws of the land. We declare what's wrong. And if somebody calls us holy or whatever they want to call us, whatever names, so be it. But we're going to declare what's wrong. We're going to live in truth and righteousness. And it's time the church steps up to this. What do I mean? How do we do that? We honor marriage between a man and a woman. That's how we do it. We honor marriage between a man and a woman. And sex is to be kept for this commitment. As the scriptures say. And I know when I say that, some of our families, you know, but we still say what is truth. We honor life at conception and at death or old age or handicapped or whatever at the other end of the spectrum called euthanasia and all of that stuff that's going on. No, we honor life from beginning 
to its natural end. For every human being, from conception to the very end, is created by God and loved by God. And Jesus died for them. Whether they accept Christ or not, there's still the fact that Christ died. And, and if they were to turn to him, I talked to somebody else. In heaven, they will be perfect. No more pain, no more suffering, no more this, no more that. How do we do this again? How, how do we live truth and righteousness? We honor God's creation decision by declaring male and female as God determined as he brought life in the womb. Because we have to believe that all life is created by God. And that our days are numbered by him. And the events of each day he knows. And there's nothing by chance or by accident in those ways. And so we honor God's creation decision by declaring male and female as God determined. As God determined it as he brought life in the womb. We do this with love. We do this with humility. And we don't let the world's values mess us up. And yes, we might get made fun of. People might poke at us. But this is what Jesus calls us to. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and they're going to lead us in singing a song, Not Be Shaken. And I thought, wow, how fitting that song is. How fitting that is. Because we're not going to be shaken by the things of this world. We're going to stand for what is right. And we're going to show love to a world that might hate us. We'll show humility We will be like Jesus. I don't know. Can we do that? Not in our own power. Not in our own power. But in the strength of Jesus.